In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There are still great pubs in the city of Dublin, and the pub culture is strong. I don't necessarily want this podcast to become a repository for Dublin's lost and once great pubs, or to harp back at a memorialised, quote, better time, unquote, in the past. However, there is one pub that I want to draw attention to that most definitely was once a great pub, but has been in a dilapidated state for most of my adult life. The pub has an unknown and untold history that features some of the biggest names in Irish music, film and theatre of yesteryear. This is the story of what was once the Plough Pub on Abbey Street. Welcome to Publin, a podcast about the culture, history and heritage of pubs at home and abroad. Walk along Abbey Street on Dublin's north inner city and you'll eventually come to the corner of Abbey Street and Marlborough Street. On one corner you'll see the world-famous Abbey Theatre, founded by a group including one of Ireland's foremost poets, W.B. Yeats. On another, there's a gala convenience shop that still bears the signs of a bygone age on the walls above it, Cummins and Sons Plumbing and Paint. Rotate a bit more and you'll see the very fine and recently renovated Flowing Tide Pub, one of my favourites in the city. It's an area undergoing a gradual regenesis that has a connection to Ireland's culture, past and present. If you were to turn, however, and view the final corner point of the intersection, you'll see a stark example of lost heritage of a failure to use valuable land properly, and the shell of what was once a proud and famous pub. The pub on this corner went under many names over the course of its history, but it was most familiar, in the last century at least, as the Plough, 
I can't verify this fact, but the fact of its proximity to Ireland's National Theatre would make it likely to me that the pub was named for The Plough and the Stars, a play by Irish playwright Sean O'Casey. It's a play synonymous with the Abbey Theatre, given that it has been staged there no fewer than 57 times. The Plough was well known through the course of its existence as a theatre pub, somewhere you would go for a pint before or after a show in the Abbey, and it was also where the actors would go after a performance, or perhaps even before. The younger among you listening may remember it as the Firestone, which I think was its final name before closing for good. At that time it was a shadow of its former self and hosted music nights upstairs. So why was this once famous and popular pub now sitting in a state of ruin? The licence no longer attached to the building, the site now fit only for demolition and a new beginning. Before we attempt to answer that question, let's find out more about the history of the pub. An appraisal of the building from the National Inventory of Architectural Heritage dates the building to approximately 1750 and describes it thusly. The building is one of the few on this street that survived destruction during the Easter Rising in 1916 and it may have a 17th or early 18th century core as evidence from the floor plan and roof configuration. Later alterations have impacted negatively on the building but its likely early date, given the dominance of early 20th century architecture on the street, and the retention of some timber sash windows gives it architectural importance. So the building itself is indeed quite old, but was it always in use as a public house? What do the records say? The first known reference of a bar existing on the site is from 1867. The name of the venue wasn't typical of the time. It didn't follow the usual naming convention of being named for the owner or the owner's family, and it wasn't a typical bar by any stretch of the imagination. It was known at this time as the Alhambra Palace. The original Alhambra Palace, after which it takes its name, is a palace and fortress complex located in Granada, Andalusia, Spain. Construction of the palace began in 1238 and is one of the finest examples of preserved palaces in the Islamic world. That's according to Wikipedia. This is a pub podcast, so I can't tell you much more beyond that. It also contains fine examples of Spanish Renaissance architecture, so it would be right in its element on Abbey Street in Dublin. Obviously the owners were selling the grandeur of their venue by giving it such a name and association. It clearly wasn't your average boozer. The bar was more of an entertainment venue, mimicking the popular British trends towards music halls of the time, kind of a precursor to vaudeville, where a variety of acts would be displayed over the course of a night, from music to dance to carnival-like acts. Advertisements for the Alhambra laud the exotic experience behind the closed doors put together by the proprietor Samuel Spencer Fidley. Spencer Fidley wrote in the copy for his newspaper advertisement, It is decidedly the only place of amusement in the city, attended every evening by the most select. The rooms are conducted on the London principle. We commence at eight o'clock and conclude at eleven o'clock sharp. You would pay an entry fee at the door by cheque, presumably to ensure that all patrons were upstanding and had credit with the bank, and your drinks were then covered for the whole night. The venue also boasted as one of their attractions bona fide model of the Siamese twins. The venue, however, didn't seem to do very well as it lasted only a year and closed in 1868. Jumping forward in time, it appears that the building and bar settled into the traditions of the city and became a nice regular pub. 
A declaration in a newspaper from 1881 stated, Take notice that I, Michael Curran, of number 28 Lower Abbey Street, in the county of the city of Dublin, do intend to apply at the next general quarter sessions of the peace to be holden in and for the county of the city of Dublin for a licence to sell beer, cider and spirituous liquors by retail at and in the house number 28 Lower Abbey Street in the parish of St Thomas and county of the city of Dublin dated this second day of December 1882. Michael Curran Little beyond that about Mr. Michael Curran is known or in the public record. However, his successor in ownership of the pub brings us on a tangent that connects very directly to one of Ireland's greatest ever musical exports. In the 1890s, the pub was bought by a man named Patrick Foley. Foley was from Cragg in County Tipperary. Upon moving to Dublin, it was said that his open, genial nature and cheery character endeared him to a wide circle of friends. Not all publicans are popular, but it certainly puts you in the local spotlight to own and operate a pub. So this description from his obituary will, I think, show his nature as a publican and the welcome shown within his pub. Like many publicans of the time, he lived above the pub on Abbey Street and raised a family there. As a man of reasonable means, he was able to afford a good education for his daughter Lily. As Lily grew, she became a singer of some renown in the city of Dublin during the Celtic Revival period, and was even requested to sing at the St. Louis World Fair in 1904, a huge spectacle that drew in 19 million visitors over a seven-month period. In the Dublin music scene, she had occasion to meet a talented young man who was also present on that trip to the World's Fair, a young opera singer by the name of John McCormack. Lily's father, the publican Patrick Foley, was part of a group of businessmen who fundraised to send John in 1905 to train in the Theatre La Scala in Milan with the best in the business. For those of you listening who haven't encountered John McCormick, or Count John McCormick as he became known, he was a singing sensation, was a huge act in the United States of America. He was hugely popular for singing songs about his homeland of Ireland and somewhat nationalist songs for the immigrant Irish population in America, making him one of the biggest names in the music business. It was the first big name to record It's a Long Way to Tipperary and had hits with Keep the Home Fires Burning and The Wearing of the Green. To give you an idea of how big a name John McCormick was, he was paid $500,000 in 1929 to appear in a Hollywood film about Ireland called Song of My Heart. But let's rewind to the early 1900s and back to Lower Abbey Street. John and Lily were in the same singing troupe and struck up a relationship very quickly. Patrick Foley sponsored his early career, and you could say that the proceeds from Abbey Street Drinkers went on to contribute the fostering of the talent of Ireland's most famous ever opera singer. In 1906, Patrick Foley passed away, and he was remembered as thoroughly Celtic in character. His family were imbued with the love of all that was dear to the heart of Irishmen. Among his fellow members of the licensed trade, he was regarded with the deepest respect. 
His stories of his home life and political experiences of troubled political days gone by made him a most entertaining raconteur. Following Patrick's passing, John McCormick came to live in the family home above the pub on Abbey Street. We know this from the marriage notice from 1906. Marriage. John Francis McCormick, a bachelor, a gentleman, from 28 Lower Abbey Street, Dublin, son of Andrew McCormick, a gentleman, married Elizabeth Foley, a spinster, from 28 Lower Abbey Street, Dublin, daughter of Patrick Foley, on 20th of July, 1906, at St. Mary's Pro Cathedral, Marlborough Street, Dublin. The witnesses were Thomas Bennett and Bridget Foley. The notice goes on further to say, Her older brother, Thomas Foley, of 12 Leinster Road, Rathmines, Dublin, drowned in the sinking of RMS Leinster. The RMS Leinster was a steamship between Dunleary and Holyhead that delivered mail and was torpedoed by a German U-boat one month before the end of the First World War. Lily went on to live a charmed life of fame and wealth, moving to the USA with John before returning in later life to Ireland. In her autobiography, she made no mention of the trade that her father practised. In 1924, the pub became Larkins. In 62, it came into the hands of Mary Ellen O'Brien. In 64, it was the turn of John O'Dwyer. And in 1969, Thomas Maher of Castlenock bought it. But we're a bit light on the detail of these ownerships. And what we'd really like to know about is the relationship between the Plough pub and the Abbey Theatre. Well, the problem is that these stories aren't necessarily written down in any book or archive. So how can we find out about this crucial part of the story? Well, luckily for me, and luckily for the story, I just so happen to know some people to ask about this very topic. Both of my parents worked in the Abbey Theatre. In fact, that's where they met. My mother was head of stage management, and my father was an actor, an Abbey player, for some decades. I sat down with my dad and picked his brain about the history of the plough and its long connections with the Abbey Theatre including the actors, the patrons, and the publicans. I'll let my dad tell you a little bit about his own career Will you get first. cracking into it? Yeah, of course. Okay, so... What do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> do you remember the first time you went to the, the plough, or when did your relationship with us as an actor start? It must have started, I'd say, in either 1966 or 67, because the Abbey moved to the new theatre in 1966. And I had left the Abbey a month before they moved. So I wasn't there at the, the transfer over from the Queen's Theatre to the new Abbey, and which I was very distressed about. But I was working my head off out on television and anyway. But so I probably, I think the first show I did in 1966 and 67 with the Abbey was the Christmas pantomime of all things. So that's probably when I would have visited the Plough for my first time. Now, I was thinking the other day that the the Abbey went on fire in 1952 and didn't go back till 1966. So I don't know. I mean, it wasn't called the Plough in 52. So, but I don't know if at that time it was the uh, the go-to pub for Abbey goers. I know that the actors favoured the Liffey Bar up to 1952, up to the fire, because... <laughs> Actors are very practical people. The stage door 
of the Abbey at that stage was in the lane beside the Abbey. And the back door of the Liffey Bar was exactly opposite the stage door of the Abbey. So they'd be able to scoot over during the interval even, you know, and have a quick one there and then get back on uh, back, back to work. I started going in in 66. I didn't go back into the Abbey, though, full-time until 71. But I did appear at least once or twice every year with them. The, the plough was the, for me, was the pub to go. I liked the pub. It was owned at that stage by a man called John Dwyer, Johnny Dwyer. And I think John, he had a, another pub, I think, in Moore Street. And he eventually, when he sold the plough, I think he bought the Oval over in Abbey Street, Upper Abbey Street. He was a great publican. He had a terrific staff there from about 66 or whatever he took it over, 66 till about 70 or 71. Eamon Clune was the manager, a grand fellow. still to the good. I'm very friendly with Eamon and his brother, indeed, Paddy. But uh, Eamon had a, his second in command was a chap called Tommy. And I can't remember Tommy's surname. I think it might have been Carol. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't vouch for that, but... They were, oh, they were a first-class team. And they there was a few other barmen there as well, of course. But uh, they were the, the ones in charge. And they, they, it was a terrific place to go. I mean, it, the culture of drink in my business at that stage was very, very strong. I mean, it, the play was like a second home, you know. What, was there any problems with, um, you know, obviously plays can finish late depending on how long they go on for. So was there any problems with getting served a late pint or was it de rigueur to, to get a late pint after a show? No, you might get a pint if you come in on the dot, you know, closing time. But the, the big split, at that stage, everybody went to the plough. There might have been a couple would go to the flowing tide at that stage because the plough had a lovely lounge upstairs and a, a very a very good quality bar downstairs and the abbey the company were nearly split in half half would go to the bar the other half would be upstairs in the lounge i was always a lounge man myself i i preferred it but years or a few years later in the 70s there was a late show and i'm not sure i think it might have been des cave arrived in at three or four minutes after closing time and he was refused a drink Des said, well, I go across the road. So he went over to the tide and a few of his pals went with him. And that caused most of the company to stop going to to the plough. Now, this was under a different management. It wasn't Damon Clune at that stage. There was a, a different manager had taken it over. And obviously they were acting on instructions. You know, you can't, you can't break the law. But that, that caused the big split at that stage. And now, I don't know when that was, but I was never a, a flown tide man. I was always sort of a plowman. But I stopped drinking in 77. So I didn't go to either of the pubs after that. So the, the, uh, the split <laughs> could have been slightly before that or around that time, I'm not sure. But... Um, Johnny Dwyer sold the pub to Tom Maher. Tom was from Port Leisha, I think. A lovely fellow, a grand man altogether. And he installed a first-class 
management team there. A chap called Jimmy Ryan from Wexford and Donald Murphy from Dublin. Donald, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, was married to a cousin of mine since then. Now, I don't think they were. He was married to her at the time uh, in the 70s. But I think since then he did. He, he was, was married to a cousin of mine. Anyway, they had a wonderful team there. And it was a great pub. I, mean, I loved the, the lounge upstairs. They also did great food. In answer to another question of yours, which you haven't asked yet. I, and I think uh, the cook was a woman called Mrs. Tilly. I don't know, was that her real name or was that her, her bar name? Or, but I, she could have been there from Johnny Dwyer's time now. And Tom Maher may have, what would you say, inherited the services of Mrs. Tilly. But Mrs. Tilly would be in early in the morning and she'd put on a full ham every day upstairs. So it was the kitchen upstairs above the lounge. They used to have the most wonderful salads. You could get a ham salad there that would feed you for the day, you know, as a fairly a fairly reasonable cost. They wasn't dear by any means, you know, and there was things like uh, steak and kidney pies and that sort of thing. Tom, Tom Riot ran it very well and the two lads that he had appointed, again, there was two or three other barmen there as well, but they couldn't have done a, a better job. And it was obvious that they liked actors. They liked the people that were coming into the pub, which makes a huge difference to the atmosphere, you know, in it in a pub, if you're just being tolerated, uh, it, it takes the, the joy out of it. As I say, it was home from home for me for a long time. And would, you know, just the mere fact of the pub being full of, or partially full of actors, been a draw to get all the patrons who were in for a play in the Abbey Inn, and would that have been a big pull for the pub as well? I presume it must have played a part in it. I mean, it was the pub at the time for the patrons as well as for the actors, you know. Now, there were some actors in the Abbey that I never saw in the plough at all. There were some of them just didn't drink. Me, all over brilliant, you know, didn't drink. Bill Foley would occasionally go over and have a pint. You know, there was others uh, <laughs> who were standing at the door at half ten waiting to get in at the morning. <laughs> and I will say I probably was amongst them on a few occasions as well. Get, getting fired up for the day. You know? I was in the Florentine, naturally, but uh, I was never a, a regular there. It was owned by a man called Eddie Bone, who was a very, very nice man, great businessman. And uh, two lads that ran it, I'm not sure, I think their name was Paddy and Dave. I'm not sure, I, believe, I, I couldn't swear to that. But again, it was a grab. But, you know, the, the, the plough had the advantage, of course, that they had the lounge upstairs, you know, which was, it was very comfortable. And yeah. do, you, do you have any memory of how much a, a, a pint of plane might have set you back or <laughs> relative to the rest of the city, how, how were they priced? My memory is that the pint probably cost about 20 pence. I wouldn't swear to that. That would be in the early 70s. I wouldn't swear to that. Uh, to put it in perspective, when I left the Abbey in early 66, my pay was £9 a week. 20 pence for a point, you get five points for the pound, you know. Mm. And uh, again, I, I, I rejoined the Abbey then at 71. My pay had gone up a good bit from then. There was a culture of drink in the business because it must have been relatively cheap. Either that or we neglected everything else. We didn't pay the rent or the ESP or whatever. We all just drank our heads off. 
I smoked very heavily. I, I used to smoke 50 cigarettes a day. And just across from the Abbey in Abbey Street, there was a little tobacconist, Don Sultan was his name. And uh, he stopped every type of cigarette you could imagine. And myself and Alan Simpson were the only two, I think, that, that I know of, who smoked French cigarettes. We smoked Gorwas all the time. And I think around that stage, the 20 cigarettes probably would have cost two shillings and sixpence or something like that. In terms of the, the people that would have visited the pub, the ones famous from the theatre or famous from elsewhere, do any people kind of jump out to um, have seen or, or drank with in there? Well, as to say, I stopped drinking in 77. But naturally, anybody, any actor that was working in the Abbey would have gone to the plough say for a drink after lunchtime or at night or whatever so I, I'm quite sure that Peter O'Toole drank there in fact I remember one occasion that he went over I was playing in Plough of the Stars in the Abbey and O'Toole came into the bar and he said he came over to me and he says where were you he said I was over at the Plough looking for you and he wanted to have a chat about the about the play so O'Toole would have and O'Toole worked there in the Abbey he did uh, Waiting for Godot and things like that. So I'm sure he would have been a regular. Um, Cyril Cusick, although Cyril was an old man at the, at the time, I'm sure Cyril would have popped in from time to time for a little Irish uh, to brighten his day for him. And as I say, anybody who was working there, you know, I mean, all the lads, uh, I suppose Gabriel Bourne, Liam Neeson, Colin Meany, you know, that would be working. They'd go over there for a sandwich and a, a coffee at least. At lunchtime, I don't know would they be regular nighttime visitors because usually, or a lot of, of well-known people who worked in the Abbey would, after the show, would go to the Abbey Bar, and the Abbey Bar was being, was run by uh, a wonderful manageress, Lily Shanley, Lily and Ty Crowley, who was the premises manager. Cyril, Cusick, and Fanola and myself had many a very pleasant evening in the Abbey Bar when the patrons would all be gone and the doors would be locked, the five of us, or maybe even six of us, would be there. And we'd be talking and chatting and telling stories. And Cyril was a great storyteller. I mean, he had so many stories about the old days and about his, his life as an international film star, which he was. But I remember on a few occasions that we'd be there and, God knows what time it was because you'd hear the front door of the Abbey opening and the next thing is the fella on security patrol with his van outside to come in was a big Alsatian dog and he'd be going all around the theatre <laughs> making sure that everything was secure and then we'd be drinking our heads on two o'clock in the morning, you know. But wonderful, wonderful times. Lovely nights I had there. Would it, would it make you sad to see the state of of the site that the plough was on now. Oh, isn't it dreadful? It's dreadful. And, you, and you know, the other thing about it is that um, the the chipper beside the Del Rio, that, they did very, very good chips. And they did a smash and mix grill. But the strange thing was that over the Del Rio, along that row of houses there, people lived there. There was flats above the Del Rio. Uh, there was a man called Johnny McCauley, and Johnny was a tailor, a master tailor. And he was the best customer the plough ever had. He'd be in there for him. I knew. 
more on a light note, and Johnny worked from home. And he'd make a, a suit every six months that he'd keep him in beer. You know? But uh, so, yeah, so there was flats there. Now, I presume that they're all empty and all those people are gone. It, it looks as if that whole block is falling into dereliction, which is a terrible shame. Think how vibrant it was and how, how much fun it was and how many publicans' children I put through university sitting in there day after day. <laughs> Tom Marr, who, who owned the flower, as I told you, a lovely, gentle, quiet man. I don't think Tom drank. And he was married to a woman called Deirdre. And Deirdre was uh, an actress and a very beautiful woman, lovely person. And I did a couple of plays in the period that I was out of the Abbey up to 71 with Deirdre down in the Yablana Theatre. Now, the Yablana uh, was a bit too far from the plough to bother your head going up there. But there was a wonderful pub for artists and actors nearby, which was PJ Malloy's on the corner of Talbot Street, down near Amian Street. That was a wonderful pub. And PJ was a great art collector and connoisseur of the arts, a very, very ordinary sort of a bloke. But he had a lovely art collection in the pub. And you would see from time to time some of his friends, like Gerald Dillon or, or George Campbell or Arthur Armstrong, other artists of that ilk, down in the lounge, usually say on a Friday or a Saturday night, and there might occasionally be a little bit of a lockdown in PJs when he get rid of all the, the civilians and he wanted to keep the artists there for a chat after hour. So it would have been the Plough, Malloy's and Neary's would have been kind of the bigger artists, actors, pubs in, in town? Oh, very much so. Very much so, yeah. Neary's was, Neary's sort of catered for the... Uh, the south side of the city. Now, there was a very good pub over near the Olympia, run by two brothers, Mort and Tom. But I'm damned if I can remember their name. Now, uh, they did very, very good food. So if you were working in the Olympia, that was where you went. And it was a good pub at night as well. Although the Olympia were very, very relaxed about not throwing you out, you know, when the official closing time came about. I always looked. I work in India, Blan. I was a critic at the theatre, but also part of the attraction was going to PJs after the show. There was a guy, a guy used to come down on the train on a Friday and a Saturday night from Dundalk, I think, or up so that, and he'd come into the pub and he had a big wicker basket in front of him on, on a strap, and he'd be selling little bags of prawn tails from whatever fishing village he was from. And you'd buy a, one of these little bags for a shilling or whatever it was. And everybody would sit there drinking their gins and tonics and eating their prawns, real prawns. PJ would be given out. He says, he said, the difficulty of cleaning the floor tomorrow morning is just, it'll be covered with prawn shells, you know, which, which didn't make the staff happy. But it does had that sort of an atmosphere, you know, wonderful place. Wonderful. Dublin has changed. I don't know, does, is there anything like that going on? I don't think actors drink anything like used to um, in those days anymore. And fair juice of them. You know, the money is too bloody hard earned nowadays to be blown as up. Drink to excess. So there you have some first-hand knowledge of the plough 
that you won't find in any book, and no doubt you're now longing for a slow-cooked ham to accompany your daytime pint. The story of the plough is only a sad story when you see the state of disrepair that the building is in now. There's a rich history on the site of that building, but at some point in the not-too-distant future, the bricks will be erased and all but the memories will remain. In 2022, the City Council sold the site for €550,000 and last we heard, there was a plan to build six apartments on the site. There's no sign of any work, good, bad or indifferent, on the site just yet, so it's safe to say that you'll be able to view this site of decay and remember its past glories for a little while longer. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of the Publin Podcast. It's a bit of a sad topic, but I'm very grateful to my dad, Clive Garrity, for bringing the pub to life and making sure that the memory of the pub, the owners and the patrons, will live on in the stories that he told me and yourselves listening at home. The podcast was featured in the food and travel sections of Spotify this week, so I suppose that means the listenership is gathering pace. Any small thing that you could do to help the podcast would really be appreciated, whether that's rating it, sharing it on social media, or telling a friend. This is a one-man band, and every little helps. I can't tell you my excitement when researching this episode and finding out that John McCormick and Lily Foley had lived there above the pub, and mentioning the pub address in their marriage certificate was the icing on the cake. That's a brilliant slice of history to stumble across, especially when you've a special interest in pubs. My name is John Garrity, and if you'd like to contact me about anything related to the podcast with a comment, idea, or question, you can shoot me an email at publinie at gmail.com. That's it for another week, so all that is left to say is thanks for listening and slauncha. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.